chapter 5. It's one of those e-books. Yeah, turning your Bibles to Ecclesiastes chapter uh, 5. That's not exactly what I meant, but you know that. Um, we'll, we're going to look this morning just at the first seven verses of uh, Ecclesiastes 5. Um, it is our practice to stand when we read God's Word. So if you are able, uh, let's stand together. Guard your steps when you go to the house of God. And to draw near to listen is better than to offer the sacrifice of fools. For they do not know that they are doing evil. Be not rash with your mouth, nor let your heart be hasty to utter a word before God. For God is in heaven and you are on earth. Therefore, let your words be few. For a dream comes with much busyness and a fool's voice with many words. When you vow a vow to God, do not delay paying it, for he has no pleasure in fools. Pay what you vow. It is better that you should not vow than that you should vow and not pay. Let not your mouth lead you into sin. And do not say before the messenger that it was a mistake. Why should God be angry at your voice and destroy the work of your hands? For when dreams increase and words grow many, there is vanity. But God is the one you must fear. The grass withers, flowers fade, but the word of the Lord stands forever. Let's pray. Uh, we pray, O Holy Spirit, that you would uh, be with us now. Unstop ears, um, uh, open hearts to, and, and minds to hear and to understand and to love and to embrace and to be changed by this, your very word. We pray all of this to the honor and glory of Christ. Amen. You may be seated. Uh, I, I'm sure you won't remember this. Uh, I'm sure you probably didn't even know it at the time. But in May of 2011, uh, President and Mrs. Obama uh, caused a bit of an international um, crisis of sorts. Okay, that's probably overreaching a little bit. Um, and you probably didn't even hear about it. Uh, that's not a conspiracy comment. That has nothing to do with it. It's because it didn't happen here in the States. It's because it happened in Great Britain. And, and we, as Americans, don't seem to care a whole lot about certain rules of civility. Uh, if I can steal George Washington's book title. Um, you see, it turns out that while the Obamas uh, were visiting with the royal family in London, um, Barack Obama made the significant British faux pas of talking during the national anthem, God Save the Queen. Uh, Mrs. Obama made the significant British faux pas of when having a picture made, she put her arm around the queen. Oh boy. She didn't get the, the memo. The queen apparently didn't get the memo. You know, there's a standard girl pose. Anytime you get a bunch of girls in a photo, they all have to do the same lean in the arm. You, you know how this works. Apparently the queen didn't get that memo. See, the reality is the last, I don't know how many years now, um, here in the States, I think presidents have been doing everything they can to convince us they're one of us. That's not true in the UK. They have 
rules. They have customs. They have practices that apply to how you interact with royalty. And those rules are intended by their own admission to communicate these people are not people like us. It's not that they're not people. It's not that they're not human. And it's not that they're not like us. It's just that in their office, in their position, in their place as queen or king or prince, or what, they are they're different. They're set apart. They're not like us in that sense. And so they, these rules are in place to keep the Obamas or to keep the regular people from treating the royals like just any old other persons. They're designed to create distance and grandeur. That's actually true of worship in the temple in the Old Testament. The tabernacle too, for that matter. But Solomon, as he's writing Ecclesiastes, he's got a temple. Thanks in part to his dad for collecting all the stuff and to him for actually carrying out the task of building the temple. And, and worship in the temple was designed to create a sense of of grandeur and of distance between God and His people. And it's in that context that Solomon writes these first seven verses of Ecclesiastes 5. He writes them to remind us that we must worship God with reverence and with awe. Notice verse 1, he begins... Uh, with a command, guard your steps when you go to the house of God. Now, obviously, he's not saying there's a tricky stone in the ground between here and there. And it's that third stone. And if you step on it funny, it'll wobble. Watch your step. That's not what he means. He doesn't mean exactly where you put your foot as you go to the temple. He means how you conduct your life. We we do this. We say this too. We'll say to, well, we'll say to our kids, wives, you'll say to your husbands, you better watch your step. And it means you better be careful what you do. You better be careful where you go and how you live. And the preacher wants his readers to guard their steps precisely because they're going to the house of God. Now, don't miss, don't miss this. The fact that there is a house of God means that God is accessible. It means that even in His complete differentness, in His complete other, that He's still accessible. He has a place, and, and the temple was this place, where He dwelt with His people. That's why when the tabernacle was set up and the, and the Israelites were on the march, um, the, the tabernacle was set up kind of in the center of the camp. He was to be the, the center of, of church life, of Israel life. But the fact that he has a house says there's a place where he comes to meet with his people. So he's 
not aloof and absent in this grandeur, in this uh, notion of uh, complete other and, and distance between God and his people. But there is a sense in which we are to come carefully, watchingly, aware of our lives, aware of ourselves as we come to worship God. The, the, temple, the temple is where the almighty creator of the universe came down to dwell with and meet with his chosen people. And part of what Solomon wants us to know is that's not the same thing as hanging out on Saturday and watching college football with the guys. It's a completely different relationship. It's a completely different activity. It's a completely different uh, mindset. Notice when, when Moses found himself in God's presence back in Exodus 3, when he, when he found himself on this, next to this burning bush, do you remember what God said to him? Take off your sandals. Why? You're standing on holy ground. The ground wasn't holy in and of itself. It was holy because God was there. God's presence made it so. And so Solomon writes to us, guard your steps as you go to the house of God. Well, how are we going to do that? How do we guard our steps? Well, he gives us some ideas. He gives us an idea of how that works in the rest of the verse. To listen is better than offering the sacrifice of fools. It's better to draw near in silence than to come boldly and foolishly. It's better to come meet with God and to do so quietly than to, to boldly enter into His presence with a foolish sacrifice. Scripture talks about fools being those who do what's right in their own eyes. They're not doing what God tells them to do. They've decided what's right and they're going to do what they think is right regardless of what God says is right. People who won't submit to the sovereignty and authority of God. A fool doesn't know God's word. He'd, he'd, he'd won't abide by it even if he did. It's like when it comes time to offer that sacrifice, thinking in Solomon's day, of course, you go out into your field and you find that lamb that's lame that's got a sickness or disease that you can't do anything with anyway. You, 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 you can't eat it. You can't sell it. It's no good to you. Let's offer that in the temple. Let's take that and give that to God as our offering. It's these fools or people who would be giving to God things that they didn't want anyway. The, the leftovers, the scraps. Or a, a sacrifice of fools would be sort of going through the motions without having any 
knowledge or recognition of what it is you're doing. Of not paying attention, of not sort of actively thinking about it while you're offering that sacrifice. Yes, I'll, I'll take this lamb and I'll give it to the priest and, and we'll slaughter and sprinkle blood, whatever it is he's got to do. But I'm not really repentant. I'll offer this lamb as a sacrifice for my sin, but I'm not really that bothered by my sin. But that'll be good enough. It's a matter of just going through the motions. Notice how Solomon describes them. They don't know that they are doing evil. It's not just that they're not doing right. It's that they're doing evil. It's that what they're doing is actually continuing in their sin. It's amazing how often even we do something similar. How often we think, I mean, I I went to church. Or I go to church more than I don't. Or, I mean, why is this happening to me? Why, is, why are these things going on? Because, because, I mean, I had my quiet time. I mean, I even prayed today. We, we create these, these sort of hurdles that we've cleared that somehow is supposed to make life easy and smooth for us. No, I didn't really pay that much attention. I mean, no, I, my heart wasn't in it. No, I don't really know what we did or what we said or... Even the sermon text, I don't have any idea. But I was there, and that's supposed to be good enough in our minds. You know, it's, it's interesting because I think we think of the Old Testament as the bloody testament. And, and obviously, it is the bloody testament, right? But in our minds, we create this hard gap between the old and the new. That was the bloody oppressive, difficult God. And and in the New Testament, we have the gracious, loving, merciful God of grace. But Deuteronomy tells us, Hear, O Israel, the Lord is one. It starts with listen. Or David in Psalm 51, the sacrifices of God were a broken spirit and a contrite heart, O God, you will not despise. Or 1 Samuel 15, to obey is better than sacrifice. To listen, better than the fat of rams. It's a theme throughout the whole Old Testament. That God's people in, in coming to gather at the temple and coming to worship were to come not so quick to speak, but guarding their steps, watching their lives, that their lives might reflect what they've come there to do. Guard your steps. There's a second command given in verse 2, which really sort of plays out in two different ways in the rest of the passage. In verse 2, he says, don't be rash with your words. Uh, Don't let your heart uh, utter a word before God. Obviously, we know that before God means not, that's not a time sequence. It doesn't mean you can't speak until he speaks. See, that's how it works in the presence of the queen. If you're in the presence of the queen, you don't talk unless she speaks to you first. It means 
in the face of God or in the presence of God, as long as you're in God's presence, be careful how you speak. Be careful of your words. Be careful how you pray when you pray in God's house. And then he tells us why in the rest of the verse. For God is in heaven and you are on earth. The reality is the creator-creature distinction is real. He is completely other. He is high and lifted up and the King of kings and the Lord of lords. And we recognize that when we come into His presence and when we speak, we do so acknowledging that He is the ruler and we are the ruled. He's the Creator. We are the creature. Notice that when you utter a word before God, when you pray... You're actually getting to speak to that God who is in heaven, though you are on the earth. Again, we're getting this this picture of the fact that you have access to the God who is completely unlike you. You have access to the God who rules and reigns over all of creation. You get this, this taste, the fancy words, his transcendence and his eminence, his complete aboveness and His nearness. Recognize that when you pray, when you worship, when you gather to worship God, you're doing so. A God who rules and reigns over all, but who has wants, longs for the access of His people. Because He's in heaven Because we're on earth. He's far above us. And yet He grants us access to His presence. It's not the same thing, but you just don't put your arm around the queen. She's not one of the girls. She's not your shopping buddy. She's not your bridge partner. She's the queen. And you treat her like that you don't treat royalty like a commoner and that's part of the warning here you know we get god's eminence i think we we get that pretty well especially given you think about the the places that we as grace covenant have been meeting Um, it's pretty hard to get a sense of transcendence in this room Uh, it's pretty hard to get a sense of transcendence in the library Um, And so maybe we get eminence better than we do uh, transcendence. But how does he teach us to pray? To begin with our father, not with our friend. To recognize that he is in control. To recognize that he is the sovereign ruler over all of creation. That he is both king and has adopted us into His family. He warns us, don't be rash with your mouth. But then there's a a second aspect to that in verse 4 when He says, 
Um, when you vow a vow to God, do not delay paying it. He warns against making vows, making public promises before God and witnesses. Some promises are, um, are easier made than kept. And, and we all know this. That's why kids create things like a pinky promise. Like that's supposed to be you know, a harder promise to break. Imagine we, you make the promise. Luther made a similar one. God, if you'll get me, or St. Anne, if you'll get me out of this storm, I will commit myself to being a monk. And, and it would be easy getting out of the storm to say, well, I mean, I didn't really mean it. I mean, I was sort of pressured into it because, you know, things were difficult. And, and you can't really hold me to it because that was a, a promise. Uh, you have to put that in quotes. Made under duress. And so you, you can't really uh, hold me to that. And yet the preacher warns there's making a vow and, and not keeping it or delaying paying it is foolish, he says, verse 4. He makes that same connection. It's the fool who makes the promise and then doesn't keep it. You know, we make vows all the time. And, and some are easier to keep than others. Some we make knowing we're not going to. Some we make with good intention and struggle. But there's vows like till death do us part. Vows like support the church and its worship and work to the best of our ability. Submit yourself to the government and discipline of the church and promise to study its purity and peace. To raise my children in the nurture and admonition of the Lord. All of those are vows that people take in the context of a church. And how easy it is. To say, well, it got me what I wanted at the time and I don't really mean it now. Solomon says it's better not to have made them than to make them and not keep them. Or as he says in verse 6, don't let your mouth get you in trouble. Don't let your mouth lead you into sin. And don't say before the messenger, the, the one who's come to claim the promise... Well, but I mean, I mean, really, you, it was, those were tough times, dude. You gotta, you can't really expect me. Like, there's no way. I didn't mean it. Don't let your mouth lead you into sin. You know, I think it would be easy for us to, um, to think that, that statements like this, that this is an Old Testament passage and it applies to life in the temple, but you know, it doesn't really that much apply to us in the New Testament age living here like we do. It'd be easy for us to think that these kinds of, of, of rules and etiquette and, and responsibilities and, and this kind of care, that it's just different for us than it was for them. And yet, and I messed up because I should have saved it. Last week, our call to worship last week was from Hebrews 12, worship God with reverence and awe. For the Old Testament believer, most of worship happened in the temple. 
Certainly we're called to to worship God with reverence and awe when we gather, but we also recognize that we worship God all the time. We live our lives before Him. That phrase that pops up a couple of times in this passage. We live our lives before the face of God in His presence. So He tells us, guard your steps. Don't be rash with your words and pay what you vow precisely because you're always in God's presence. I'm going to close with an illustration. It's an illustration that I, I, I trust all of you know. If not, then you have your uh, Lord's Day afternoon reading assignment. This is, this is your assignment. Um, there's a scene in The Lion, the Witch, and the Wardrobe uh, when the four Pevensey kids... Uh, Peter, Edmund, Susan, Peter, Susan, Edmund, Lucy, if you want to get them in that order. Um, they are, um, they're in Narnia. They're in the home of Mr. and Mrs. Beaver. And they've just learned about Aslan. And the conversation goes essentially like this. Uh, Mr. Beaver says he's the king. He's the Lord of the whole wood. They, of course, had no idea who this Aslan guy was. And eventually Lucy figures out something's up and she says, is he a, is he a man? And, and you get this sort of um, incredulous sort of idea in the, in the beaver's head. Um, Mr. Beaver says he's a, a lion. The lion. The great lion. So he keeps adding to it. He's not just a lion. He's the lion. In fact, he's the great lion. And then Susan asks the question, is he quite safe? I shall feel rather nervous about meeting a lion. That you will, dearie, and no mistake. If there's anyone who can appear before Aslan without their knees knocking, they're either braver than most or else just silly. Mr. Beaver said, safe? Who said anything about safe? Of course he isn't safe. But he's good. He's the king, I tell you. That's supposed to represent our relationship with Christ. Is he safe? Well, no. Not at all. But he's good. And He welcomes us because He's good. And He loves us and calls us to be His own. Let's pray together. Father in Heaven, uh, we thank You uh, that when we come to You, we're coming to the King of heaven and earth, to the King of all of creation, to the One who rules and reigns over all of it, who is not safe because, just as we sang earlier, one little word from You shall fell Satan himself. Father, we pray that You would bring more and more men and women into humble submission to You as the King of the universe, that they wouldn't be banished with Satan at the last day. Use us 
to, to reach the lost, to bring new people, uh, more and more people into the kingdom that they might know your nearness and your transcendence. Through Christ we pray. Amen.